Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 41. And as you're turning, let me just say that uh, all this talk of Jacob and Esau reminds me of the relationship between my own two boys. We look forward to Reed returning uh, for Christmas here with us. He's off in Virginia in graduate school. And, you know, growing up around a, uh, a precocious uh, older brother, Arthur John had a great uh, burden from that. And I thought as a father, now how do I encourage my son, my middle son, how do I encourage this boy in his uh, growth and development? And so at a very young age, I began whispering in his ear, the older shall serve the younger. Of course, this delighted him, and as it turns out, when his sister was born, it delighted her even more. (laughs) Psalm 41. Uh, As we begin uh, looking at this psalm together, note uh, that we are at the end of the first book of the psalms. There are five books in total together which make up the 150 psalms, and we are at Psalm 41, which is the last of the first set or book of psalms. This is the last poem in the first book. And uh, if you were looking for a title for this, uh, you might call it the Hospital Psalm. Psalm 41, to the choir master, a psalm of David. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, Lord, be gracious to me and heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words, while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed Be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Let us pray. O our Father and our God, open this book to us. It is your word. May your word be applied to our hearts and lives by your Holy Spirit, we ask. And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, This is a psalm of David. He was the great prophet king. 
And David obviously wrote this psalm by internal evidence on his sickbed. He was in illness and he cries out to God. He asks his heavenly father to remember him and to raise him up. The illness is not specified. But the God to whom he turns for aid and comfort is pain and suffering like that which David went through, is relevant to each and every one of us here. There's not a person in this room who does not at one time or another find themselves laid down low in the providence of God. The fever, the aches, the disorientation, the pain. And so we do well to listen to King David and to learn from him Of his greater son, who indeed is the great physician and can heal us. For this psalm teaches us that Christ-likeness is a grace from God. Christ-likeness is a grace from God. Psalm 41 is only 13 verses long. and, And these 13 verses were penned by David. He was a man after God's own heart. And we can sense something of that in the opening three verses. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. David, speaking sympathetically under inspiration of the Holy Spirit here, concerning the poor, or the poor in spirit, or the poor in body, He speaks after God's own heart and so shares with us concern for those who feel helpless and poor. He goes on to confess his sin. And so we can see as David pins his great poem, his great psalm, uh, that there is something of one who has been in the presence of God and done business with God as a sinner, broken As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. Now, it is true in this life, sin and sickness go together, but not the way in which many people think. It's not that one is directly connected to the other, that you put a quarter in the Coke machine and you press a button and out pops the drink you want. It's not that you put a sin in to life and out pops out the bottom some disease of which you must partake. Oh, our world is much more complicated than that. It's not a matter of outward things only. It's a matter of inward things. We spring forth from the womb broken, guilty, Polluted, needy creatures, cute, huggable, in desperate need of changing, but yet still broken on the inside in a way that is intertwined with the whole fabric of humanity. We have come from our first father, Adam, and our first mother, Eve. And so David is rightly here confessing his sin. Yes, the brokenness of our first father and our first mother, had a ripple effect through all the created order. And so things in this world are are no longer very good as they 
originally were. And there are dislocations on every hand. And this cosmic dimension, this human nature and human life dimension of sin and brokenness and misery is something we dare not underestimate. Oh, it's that all of us have put quarters into the machine. We just walk up to it and by being human, out pops all sorts of concoctions which fill up our lives and bring us such heartache and brokenness. Sickness comes in this life of misery and we look forward to heaven where there'll be no more, no more aches and pains ever again. But now... We live in a world filled with aches and pains. And sickness reminds us of our frailty and our finitude before God. I am not well of body or of soul, David here confesses to his God. And David also endured the hatred of men. In verses 5 through 8, we have an extended section, which we've already read, in which his enemies appear before him and, and they come to the hospital in his bed of suffering and they feign and act as if they're concerned for him and will be praying for him. And then they leave the room and wag their heads. Oh, he is on his bed of suffering and humility and they can't wait for the undertaker to arrive and carry him off. They're counting the days and hours. They're already beginning to divide up his kingdom and settle where they will take the spoils. Oh, the hatred of men is something that King David had to endure. Do you remember Job's friends? Eliphaz the Tamanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Nathamite. Do you remember them and their mocking of Job and, and Job's response to them in the 16th chapter where he said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words have an end or what provokes you that you answer? I also could speak as you do. If you were in my place, I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. Oh, they made the classic mistake that we see in all the world around us. That there is a direct one-to-one connection between some particular sin that we have committed and necessarily in every case some disease with which we find ourselves afflicted. Oh, personal sin only is not what produces this concoction or cocktail of suffering in which we live and of which we must partake. That's just one part of living in a broken and fallen world in the providence of God. You see, individual sins can bring individual miseries, but that corporate sin which we have inherited from our first father Adam and our first mother Eve and and the whole train of it as it spreads through all of the earth, all of it touches us. There would be no hope for us were it not for God's providential intervention in protecting and holding back sin. It's not easy for us to discern and to divide what belongs to this sin's account and all the others in the world. But this much is true. Suffering 
even physical ailments, lay our hearts low to teach us that we need to be lowly of heart before our Heavenly Father. We are not always smitten for a particular sin, but we are always laid low that we might be raised up by Christ Jesus our Lord. David suffered from those who came to him in feigned concern and cursed behind his back at his fate. And that was bad, but worse still is verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me to be betrayed by one close to his heart. To have one who should bring joy and hospitality and graciousness and comfort and sympathy in your life to instead turn their back makes them worse than all the others. Was it Absalom, his own son, who turned against him? We don't know. But it's clear that whoever it was, it was deeply painful to David, even as he suffered on his bed of illness. But yet, David found himself not alone in the world. All of his comforters were vain, but his God was not. And so he could cry out to him for help. He could turn to the Lord and ask for him to be gracious to him, that the one who could forgive his sins could touch his body and heal him and raise him up in his good time. Oh, he cries out, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Oh, his benediction is so good and so full in his heart, even as he lies on his bed of suffering, it deserves not one amen, but two. David knows that the Lord sustains and that the Lord defends and that the Lord sanctifies even in the midst of lowliness and suffering of life. David wrote this psalm. But Jesus is the one who fully lived it. Jesus, is He not the help of the helpless? Is He not the help and aid of the helpless and the poor as no man ever before Him could have hoped to have been? He was the one who came considering the poor, knowing firsthand by his own feeling and inspection their day of trouble that he alone could deliver. Oh, the Lord could protect and keep. The Lord is the one who would not give up his children to their enemies, but rather sent his son. Jesus lived this psalm. And was God the Father's appointed means of helping the helpless that we might find salvation in Him? But the price was high and heavy because He did not come just emotionally sympathizing with people and what they went through in their little bodies and little lives. But rather, He had to take on flesh and dwell among us to identify with us sinners, to be one with us, us in taking on true human flesh, true human nature, true human flesh and blood, that his life might be paid, that he might sacrifice himself. And so in verse 4, 
We read, as for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me and heal me, for I have sinned against you. So thorough and so deep was his incarnation and connection and identification with us that he can take the words that we should speak. He takes them representatively upon his lips. He sings them back in worship to his heavenly father. And he who knew no sin who was not a sinner, became sin for us that we might be forgiven as He died and gave His last breath upon that cross for what we have done. Oh, He identified with us the poor and helpless that we might be saved. And if David faced the hatred of men, Jesus faced it in spades. He had the Pharisees on the one hand and the Sadducees on the other. Now, don't become worried about, worried about what side of the congregational divide you've sat on this evening. There's a little Pharisee and Sadducee in us all, is there not? Oh, the rulers of Israel, they said such nice things to him on various occasions. They would say to him, speak to us plainly. Tell us if you're the promised Christ. Show us another sign. Let us see. When did you heal? On the Sabbath, did you say? And they would plot. And they would scheme to destroy him for having violated the day which they thought was their possession rather than his own. Oh, Jesus endured the hatred of men of which David was only catching in his own life experience but a glimpse as he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who would see Jesus safely through it all. And if David was betrayed by a friend whose name we do not know, Jesus was betrayed by one whom we know all too well. John chapter 13, beginning in verse 17 says, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. But I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclined at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter mentioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple leaned back against Jesus and said to him, Lord, who? Who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. 
Psalm 41 is all about our Lord, about his life and ministry. It is a prophetic statement of what would be done and felt in the future by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. My close friend betrayed me, Jesus quotes from this psalm, even as he sat having the last supper with his closest disciples in all the world. But as hard as Jesus' life and ministry was, every step of that painful way in the rocky road towards the cross, he knew that he would be vindicated by his heavenly Father. And just as David sat on his bed of suffering, and he looked down and looked forward to the coming light of God's vindication, so too Jesus knew that he would be vindicated by his heavenly Father. But you, O Lord... Be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen again. David sang these words. But Jesus lived them. What other man in all of history, even the best among us, could ever have said back to our Heavenly Father, you have upheld me because of my integrity. Set me in your presence for eternity. Jesus would be vindicated by resurrection. He would be vindicated by ascension. He would be vindicated by enthronement on the very throne of God in the center of heaven, which will eventually come down to earth. Oh, when He returns, He will return triumphantly with all His holy angels with Him. And then we will see and then we will know that He is King and Lord of all. And so we, too, sing this psalm. In singing of God's compassion for the poor and the blessed estate in which they enjoy as they trust in Him, we learn to feel and to know the importance of caring for even the least in the kingdom of God and on the earth. Oh, those who have a gospel need especially among us, they have a right to our hearts and to our hands. We have been born again for a reason. We have been born again for a purpose, and that is to bear good fruit and so bring glory to God. The church is Christ's church. It's not a social club. It's not the finest local men's society group in the neighborhood. It is not a place where things are done to please and suit ourselves. It is a place where things are done to please and suit Him. As He commanded, we invite them to come in. As He commanded, we urge them to come in. As He commanded, we even follow the Apostle in begging them to come in, that they might hear the words of life, and so that they might also trust in Him forever. 
but where are they? Where is the proof of our obedience in these matters? It's not enough to pat ourselves on the back and and to feel very good about being Presbyterians with good faith and good doctrine and good order. We must pray and work. We must pray and invite. We must pray and share the gospel with them. That is our calling and our duty. Yes, God calls us to grow in faith and life and knowledge of his word. But he also calls us to reach out our hands and to call them in. Even into this church, into this fellowship, that they too might see and be warmed in the light. Oh, God is good. And so we must respond in love and worship to Him with a hand outstretched to whosoever will come. And we must sing and not hide our sins from Him. He has spoken the truth about our evil deeds. But that is not not enough. He commands us to repent and to trust in Him. And so, like a man who is laid low on his bed with a fever and a sore, we must be lowly of heart before our Heavenly Father, confessing that we are but dust, that we are sinful dust even at that, and we need His help and aid in every step of the way. And we must not wilt under opposition. Oh, there is opposition. But it doesn't always come in the form you might think. Do you remember Winston Churchill? How he would wander the streets of London in the early part of the war praying that the bombs would fall. A strange thing to pray for as a leader. But he knew... (laughs) He knew that the threat was great and that Western civilization hung by a thread and that his people were asleep. And they needed waking up, even by desperate measures. We too face the temptation to ignore Satan's strange forms of opposition. Rather, we must open our eyes, but not losing heart. We must face the day and we must live the life that we are called to in His glory and to His glory. And so we must not be surprised by betrayal. Rather, we must expect it. It comes with the territory of being in the kingdom of God and in fellowship in the body of Christ. If Judas so treated Jesus, we must expect the same. If the friend and treasurer of the inner circle of twelve Betrayed the Lord of glory incarnate. What should we expect? But we have to be careful in how we think about Judas. We're tempted to demonize him. Oh, he's the fellow with the two little horns. He's the fellow with the pitchfork and the forked tail sticking out from underneath his cloak. But that's not the way it was at all. Judas was the nice fellow. Judas was the popular, trustworthy, solid fellow. You would have been charmed by him. And you would have wanted him to be treasurer too. Oh, 
Peter. He was that impetuous fellow, always jumping to conclusions and being the first to speak. John? Well, he was young, green, a little too emotionally involved with the leadership of our band. But Judas, now Judas, that's the kind of guy we really like. You see, Jesus here is calling us not to judge a book by its cover. It takes the eyes of faith to see Judas for who he really was. It takes a heart soaked in the truths of the Psalms and and all of the written Word of God to see behind the mask, to peer into his soul and know that this is the one who would betray his Master. Jesus could see it in his divinity. But we have such trouble. We are so poor judges of what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong. Oh, Judas is the example, the negative and backward example of why we so desperately need Christ-likeness. And we too must not despair of the vindication of God. We must redouble our efforts. We must urge our own hearts to flee to God, to trust in Him To find in Him the only one who can save and help. We have so much that He has done for which to be thankful. The Lord has been so gracious to us in salvation and provision. Has He not spoiled us beyond really any reasonable expectation? And so by this psalm, He calls us to look to Him. And to cry out to Him for the conformity to Christ and the Christ-likeness that we need. He alone can give it. So ask. Amen. And amen. Let us pray.